0: Christianity does not forbid you are getting ahead, you're trying to make your life a little bit nicer for you and your family. He is simply reminding us that real contentment is not found in what you have, but in what you become.
1: Welcome to search the scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor at Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We begin our last study in the book of 1 Timothy today. In chapter 6, we find one of the most misquoted passages of the Bible, a passage that addresses the love of money, which, according to the Apostle Paul, is the root of all kinds of evil. Now, money itself is not evil. It is the preoccupation with acquiring it at the expense of personal relationships and godly service that creates a problem. Let's join Dr. Broggi as he begins part one of Contentment and How Not to Miss It.
0: Would you take your Bibles, please? And I want to encourage you to f- turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We've been working through this great pastoral epistle, and today we come to our final session in 1 Timothy 6. The Apostle Paul, he's not answering questions that no one else is asking. He's addressing many of the issues that pastors and church leaders of all time have wrestled with. He gets down into the nuts and bolts of life, and he's spelled out for us how we can be successful as a church and as individuals, and this morning's passage is no exception. I want to speak to you on the subject of contentment and how not to miss it. Now, remember, we're in the third section of this great epistle. And in this section, Paul gives some very pointed and explicit instruction on how Timothy, as a pastor, ought to minister to every group that you would expect to find in a fellowship. He reminds them of how he should deal with the older men, the older women, the younger men, the younger women. He speaks to families and our responsibility to our parents and grandparents, to those who are widows indeed. He goes on and he addresses elders and how they are to be treated and respected and honored by the congregation at large and how they're to monitor one another and make sure that they are living lives of purity. In addition, he deals with the subject of slaves, which comprises, you know, over half of the population in the Roman Empire. And we looked at that in the modern-day application for us in employer and employee relationships. Now we come to the last two groups And I want to tell you, these two groups are so critically important, especially for us as Americans to hear. He's going to deal with the rich and with the poor. Let's begin reading where we left off, 1 Timothy 6, verse 3. We'll read a portion of our passage this morning. If anyone advocates a different doctrine, does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing... But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either." And if we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. Christian contentment, being happy with what you have. Now, money and possessions obviously play a very important role in our lives. But I think it's fair to say that most Americans, even most Americans who know Christ as Savior and Lord, do not have a healthy contentment when it comes to things. According to a recent USA Today poll, it revealed that 65% of Americans worry about money. Now, that's up 10% from a decade ago, having just finished one of the most prosperous decades in our nation's history. Here we are, one of the wealthiest nations on the planet, and over half of our people worry about money. And many of us think that somehow if we could just get a little bit more, acquire just a little more wealth, that somehow we would be content, that somehow we would be happy. On the front page of USA Today, an article was entitled with a chart, We Want More. In one column, it listed those and how much they earn on the other column what well, the average person who was surveyed believed they needed to be satisfied. Those on average out of a survey of 5,000 who said they earned $20,000 a year said they needed 25,000 to be happy. Those who earned 30,000 said they needed 38,000. Those who earned 45,000 said they needed 60, and On it went all the way up to $200,000 a year. And what I thought was so interesting is that the more money people made, the higher percentage of increase they felt like they needed in order to be happy. Whether a person made 20,000 or 200,000, the average person taking the survey were not satisfied with the lifestyle that they had. Now in Money Magazine, they interviewed a nationally known Dallas businessman whose estimated worth is at $500 million. You would think, that a man who is worth over $500 million would feel a sense of security and contentment. But he said, and I quote, the truth is that I worry that a day might come when I could go broke. I worried about it until 3 a.m. the other night. Don't ask me why. I've been broke once, and I don't want it to happen again. Now, material possessions and a preoccupation with it is something that characterizes so many of us. And to some degree, we need to be concerned about what we have. God has made us to be material beings. He's put us in a material place that we call planet Earth. We have a material environment where we need certain material things in order to sustain ourselves. We need food and drink in order to refuel and refresh ourselves. We need clothes in order to keep ourselves warm. We need shelter in order to protect us from the environment. But the fall of man has made us covetous as well. And covetous takes a natural concern for things and it turns it into an unnatural preoccupation, and obsession. It takes a thankful enjoyment of the gifts of God and turns it into an unthankful lust for more. Now, let me remind you of the situation in which Timothy found himself. If you remember, he's a pastor in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus had some very wealthy people. And one of the ways they became wealthy, as you know, in that place was one of the seven great wonders of the world, the Temple of Diana. And there they sold many small little shrines that people all over the Roman Empire would want to purchase. And so many became wealthy. Of course, Paul came in, preached the gospel, converted so many people that idolatry fell off, sales crashed, and they didn't like Paul anymore. And many of those wealthy people were converted and found the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in that church... You had is you really should have in every church, rich and poor, because Jesus said the poor will always be among you, and they are, and if we're commissioned to go and reach everyone, a church ought to picture every facet of society. And in the church in which Timothy pastors, he finds some wealthy people, some who are gripped by materialism, wanting more, others who are poor and wanting to be wealthy wannabes. They just wanted more. And so, Paul wants to give them a perspective, an attitude that they might find contentment. How do you find contentment where you can really enjoy what God has given you? Well, to help us to understand that, Paul is going to address three specific groups in the church first the poor, then the pastors. And then the prosperous, the poor, the pastors, and the prosperous. And of course, in addressing the pastors between both the poor and the prosperous, he's addressing us all because pastors are called to be an example to the flock. They're to lead by an example. And as we follow and model them, as we follow them, as they follow Christ, we too can find contentment. So consider first Paul's instruction to the poor. Now, he begins by reminding those in the congregation who were poor not to adopt the false attitudes of the false teachers. If you remember at the end of verse 2, he said, teach and preach these principles. That is, Timothy, don't simply give people information. Don't be some kind of a detached lecturer. You preach the truth. You take the truth of God's Word and you help God's people to see it. You employ, you plead, you uh, beg for them to take the Word of God and to apply it to their lives. Now, these false teachers, as you know, thought that material gain was the key to contentment in life. And Paul begins here in verse 3 to counter that false doctrine. If anyone advocates a different doctrine, does not agree... With sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. Godly teaching promotes godly living. And the words of the Apostle Paul are equated here with the words of Jesus Christ. If anyone does not agree with sound words, namely what he is expressing in this letter, for that matter, any letter he wrote, if you don't agree with Paul's teaching, namely those of our Lord Jesus, Because, you see, when Paul spoke, he spoke for the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a sense in which all of the New Testament could be put in red letters. Now, I know in the turn of the 20th century, some of the first red letter editions of the Bible came out. And a lot of evangelical Christians took great offense at that. Many of us don't realize that because it's just kind of standard today to buy a a Bible that distinguishes the words of Christ in red letters from the rest of the New Testament. But they took offense at that because those who first put it in red letters advocated that somehow the words of the Lord Jesus were more important or maybe even more inspired in their mind than the rest of the New Testament. Now, Paul's word in 1 Timothy 1.1 is no different than Jesus' word in in John 3.36. It doesn't matter whether it came from the lips of Jesus or the lips of Paul. In God's mind, the two are equated. And Paul, in this statement that he makes, he's equating what he says as an apostle appointed by Christ with the words of our Savior. The Lord, of course, reminded this, uh, the, the apostles of this truth in the upper room in John 14, 26. He told the apostles, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. And so connected to their writings are the teachings of Christ. So much so because our Lord promised he would bring to their minds as apostles all that he said and all that he wanted them to write. He could say to them, he who receives you receives me and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Likewise, he could also echo the one who listens to you listens to me. And the one who rejects you rejects me, and he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. That is to say, their teaching was Christ's teaching, and the people's attitude to them was the people's attitude to Christ. And so Paul is reminding Timothy of sound words that basically come from Christ himself because he is an apostle of Christ. And he warns that if anyone advocates a different doctrine, he is conceited, and understands nothing. That is to say, they are arrogant and they are ignorant. The New English Bible says it. They are pompous ignoramus. I like that. So here's Christ. Paul's representative as Christ's spokesman is basically saying, look, you don't listen to my words, then you're not listening to Christ's words, and you are conceited, and you don't know anything. Last night, we were in Raleigh, North Carolina, meeting with some of our foundation partners that underwrite the ministry there. And I met with one particular individual who is in a rather liberal denomination. I said, well, Why are you there? He said, Well, my mother in law is there, and she really wants us to go to church with her. I said, Do you understand that a portion of your tithe that you give to that church, even if the pastor is Bible believing, goes to support a pro abortion, pro homosexual cause in that denomination? He said, well, I never really looked at it that way. And then, of course, as we got into discussion, we got on the discussion of homosexuality. And, of course, it's being taught in that denomination. As his pastor said, well, look, my pastor said that Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. So how do I deal with that? Implication, Jesus never said anything about it. Paul did, but Paul had a problem with gay people. Jesus didn't. That's what's being communicated and that mainline denomination. And all Paul would say is this. When you hear my words, you hear Christ's words. Now, it is true that the word homosexual, at least as recorded in Scripture, never fell from the lips of Christ. Though I'm sure he addressed the issue with that word or a like word. That's obviously a modern word to communicate a biblical truth. But he did speak of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he told us how God feels about such sin. If you want to know how God feels about homosexuality, look what he did to Sodom and Gomorrah. He sent a message forever. It's not that God hates homosexuals. A number of people here this morning are converted, born-again people who came out of that lifestyle, and God healed them and gave them a new and clear and biblical orientation. I want to tell you something. If Jesus had never even mentioned Sodom and Gomorrah, He spoke on the subject because He spoke on it through Paul. And His point is this. You have no right to manipulate or modify the teaching of our Lord. And those who do are living in sheer arrogance and they are displaying unmitigated Ignorance, Christ' is teacher and Lord, and these false teachers who uh, deviate from His standard is giving to his apostles, are wrong. He says they are conceited. they understand nothing. Such a teacher has a morbid interest in con- controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions. False teachers are morbid, they're dead, they're sick. They're not teaching sound, healthy, wholesome doctrine, and so they end up craving controversial questions and disputes about words. This, obviously, is not a prohibition against controversy. Paul himself, in addressing the issue, is engaged in a controversial issue. Christ himself was a very controversial person, but he's speaking of someone who's gripped over controversial, small, trivial things which is a sign and symptom of spiritual sickness, instead of wholesome teaching. And so out of their teaching arises envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions. They're suspicious of people like me, preachers of God who believe every word that it says. They think we're nuts, weird, antiquated, old-fashioned, warped, biased, bigots. That's what they think. And they're the ones that are wrong, Paul says. And it results in constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Underscore that in your Bibles. These people think that godliness is a means of gain. They suppose that you can earn money from religion. Now, they do that in a number of different ways. So Paul tells us in verse 6. But godliness actually is a means of great gain. When accompanied by contentment. Now let's see if we get perspective and see the flow of thought as Paul unfolds it for us, because if we can, it will really open up for us. In verses 6 through 10, Paul is going to give instruction to the poor. In verses 17 through 19, he is going to give instruction to the rich. And sandwiched between the two, he's going to give instruction to Timothy. Now, contextually by the poor, he's not referring to those who uh, don't have food or clothing. He's speaking to people who have the necessities of life, but who do not have the luxuries of life. Now, of course, there are the poor of the poor who don't even have the necessities of life, but he's not dealing with that realm. Poor, rich, obviously, they're relative terms. You have to draw a line somewhere. And so for the sake of argument, Paul is defining poor here as those who have necessities but not luxuries. Now, you may consider yourself poor this morning. I want to tell you, over two-thirds of this planet would consider you rich, and they would gladly take the place of the poorest American. Now, follow his flow of thought carefully. If you read these verses thoughtfully, you're going to discover that Paul subdivides the poor into two categories. First, those in verses 6 through 8, who in their comparative poverty are content with the necessities of life. Then in verses 9 and 10, were those poor who are not content who are determined to become rich. Notice how verse 9 begins. But those who want to get rich... The English Standard Version says those who desire to be rich. The King James beautifully puts it, they that will be rich. The Greek word is bulimoni, and it's translated here, at want, desire, will be. It means not just a hope to be rich, but a determination, a desire, a choice, a direction in which to become rich. So on the one hand, he's going to describe the contented poor. On the other hand, he's going to describe the coveted poor. Now, those who are content, he says in this passage of Scripture, are those who have a right view of wealth. And that's what I want us to get this morning. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And some of us are not free this morning. Some of us have a lot, but we're unhappy on the inside. We've met Christ as Savior and Lord, but we're dissatisfied because we have the world's view, and we've never renewed our mind with God's truth. So I want you to see the contrast here between contentment and covetousness. First, in verses 6 through 8, we look at Paul's instruction to the contented poor. Now, the issue at hand that Paul addresses are these false teachers who have snuck into the church. And they believe that godliness is a means of material gain. And so he describes them as depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. They believe that if you could get gain, namely material gain, that that is really to your advantage. They're basically taking religion and exploiting it. They're in the ministry for the money. They're in it for the buck. And like so many teachers today, they even used it to persuade the multitudes to use religion for money. They were basically exploiting the gospel. Now, how they did it here, we're not told specifically. Maybe some of them charged exorbitant fees to be able to come and to speak or to teach. Maybe some of them were convincing congregations. If you give a certain percentage of your money, usually to me, then God is going to bless you. He's going to make you healthy, wealthy, and rich. And of course, the Bible never promises that. That's heresy. Now, God may choose to give you beyond your necessities and allow you to enjoy some luxuries in this life, but God doesn't promise that. God promises that as you give to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, He will meet your needs. That's what He promises. But He also promises that you'll have the opportunity to lay up treasure in heaven. So we're not given the specifics of how these false teachers were specifically teaching that religion is a means to gain. But Paul is reacting to that. And in essence, he says, you know what? Religion is a means to gain. But let me define gain verse 6. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. There is a great gain in godliness, but the gain is spiritual. It's not material. And so both verses 5 and 6 declare that godliness is a means of gain. In verse 5, the false teachers suppose that godliness is a means of material gain. And Paul, in essence, says in verse 6, no, it's an issue of spiritual gain. You're right. Religion is a means to gain. There is great gain in godliness. But godliness is what is the gain, not material wealth. Look at the New English Bible, how it translates verse 5. They say these false teachers think religion should yield high dividends. And of course, religion does yield high dividends. Their argument is absolutely right. But the dividends are spiritual, not material. Godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. The gain is enormous, providing your content. And by content, in this context, he's speaking about being satisfied with having the necessities of life. How do you know? Because he tells me in verse 7, he begins with that little three-letter word, for, because, because we brought nothing into the world. So we cannot take anything out of it either. Now, it's not quite so obvious in our English text, but the word nothing appears twice in the Greek New Testament. And in both clauses, it's the very first word in the clause for emphasis. The Phillips translation paraphrases it, but it catches the beauty of the Greek text. He writes, absolutely nothing did we bring into this world. Absolutely nothing shall we take out of this world. Now, Paul is not obviously praising poverty and declaring prosperity a sin. Christianity does not forbid you're getting ahead. You're trying to make your life a little bit nicer for you and your family. He is simply reminding us that real contentment is not found in what you have, but in what you become. That real contentment is found in being a godly person. That real contentment is based on internal blessing, not external acquisitions. Now, if you don't learn that this morning, and if it doesn't become a reality in your heart, you'll never be happy in this life. You will churn the decades as an unhappy person. Now, think your way through this as it relates to your birth and to your death, and you'll know that this is true. When we're born, we brought nothing into this world, and when we die, of course, we'll leave the same way. Now, they may dress you up in a fine suit, and put you in a beautiful walnut casket and cover you in jewelry or whatever they do, but the real you inside will have been left. It will have been gone. It will either be in heaven or it will be in hell. Absent from the body is present to the Lord. The opposite is true, of course, for the unbeliever. And when that shell on the ground comes out, it's not coming out in a Hickey Freeman suit. It's not coming out with your diamonds on. It's coming out the same way it came into this world. Job reminds us, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. Both Paul and Job affirm that the gaining of material possessions in this life, no matter how great or insignificant they are, are only temporary. We need to see life in that perspective if we're ever to be content. And so verse 8 properly follows. And if we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. If you have food to eat, And covering, and the word really covers more than simply clothing. The word covers, you know, shelter or whatever is necessary. If you have food in your stomach and clothes on your back, you have no right to be discontent. If you have food in your stomach and clothes on your back, you have every reason in the world to be content. But if you find contentment in material things, You'll never be satisfied. It's like the man drinking salt water who's so thirsty and all he can do is drink more and he's never happy. And so Paul's argument for contentment against covetousness is to understand the facts of life, or really better, the facts of life, the facts of birth and the facts of death. Namely, we're born into this world naked and penniless and when we leave, we will leave in the same way. And life on earth is lived between two points, when we come naked and we leave naked. And in the in-between, we may acquire some things, we may earn some things, we may give in some things, we may pinch it from others, but the fact of the matter is that the material possessions of this life are the luggage of time. They are not the luggage of eternity. You will not take it with you. And so what he wants us to see is that from our naked birth to our naked death, if we have food and covering, with that we ought to be satisfied. Having these, Paul said, we ought to be content. But if we're always lusting, coveting for something else out there, we'll never be happy. Now he's reminding us that contentment is not found in what you have. It's found in what you become. It is found in being godly. And when we are godly, we will be content simply in having our necessities met. Listen, friends, real contentment will make a poor man rich. And discontentment will make a rich man poor. You can have much and be miserable. The fact of the matter is when little is not enough, nothing is enough. You will never have enough. The secret of contentment is not wanting more. It's wanting what God has given you. It's being happy with what He has put in your hand.
1: The Apostle Paul tells us in the book of Philippians that he had learned to be happy in all circumstances. And this should be the desire of our hearts as well, to seek God's will for us in regardless of where we may find ourselves financially. For a copy of today's message, Contentment and How Not to Miss It, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877 787 7478 and requesting program 1TM13. This is the final message in our study of 1 Timothy, and now is the time you may want to consider acquiring the entire 13-volume study of this pastoral epistle. You can get more information at searchthescriptures.org or by calling 877-787-7478. Tomorrow we continue this look at contentment, so join us as we search the Scriptures.